And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. The Athletic Hello and welcome to the Race IndyCar podcast. A lot has happened since we last spoke to you, including a race, which we're going to round up today. Barber, of course, happened over the weekend, but also the debut of IndyCar's new docuseries, 100 Days to Indy, where we got to see a very topless Joseph Newgarden working out in his garden. And the man who's potentially partially responsible for that body, J.R. Hildebrand is with me on the podcast because you guys kind of work out together and push each other and are doing all sorts of kind of workouts and stuff like that. So can you take a bit of, uh, take a bit of credit for how Joseph looks in that documentary or is, uh, am I, am I pushing the boat out a little too far? No, I'm not going to take, I'm, I'm not going to take any credit for it, but I'm going to say a couple other things though. One, if this is a, if this is what a dad bot is, this is not what I signed up for becoming a new dad. <laughs> Um, and two, since we work out with the same training for with the same trainer, and we have for a while, and I'm not that far off of how Joseph performs, <laughs> why don't I look like that? Like, I don't under, I don't understand. I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to dig in with uh, with our buddy Jeff Richter <laughs> to figure this out because uh, yeah, he's definitely definitely looking yoked. <laughs> out there in Tennessee. I'm very sorry if you've not actually watched 100 Days to India. I'm sure you'll get around to it if you're listening now and you haven't yet. If you haven't, it's IndyCar's um, docuseries. People don't really like to call it like Drive to Survive, but I guess it's a similar kind of vibe. Um, and the first episode starts with um, At Home with Joseph Newgarden basically talking about um, his desire to win the Indy 500, what that's done to his life, his his home life with, with his wife, Ashley. Um also him becoming a new dad and how that's impacted his his racing career but mainly a good like it what feels like 10 minutes of him working out in his garden topless which is actually probably 30 <laughs> seconds but it, it, every man in the world is just sat there going wow and i i imagine well I, basically any gender any person in the world watching that is just going to go like wow that guy is ripped did you see the t-shirts that yes. the two crew had yes. this weekend yes that I did. was awesome i did so also if you haven't seen that yet um i guess it's a bit of fun there's a, a picture that team penske took before the barber race of joe Joseph stood kind of like hanging over his crew with a Thor hammer and his crew <laughs> dressed in t-shirts that just depict uh, topless people. So um, the the crew, the two crew obviously saw the funny side of how all of that played out and, and took a funny picture. So yeah, Joseph Newgarden, someone I'm sure we'll get to speak to at some point in this podcast, JR, but we should probably set the scene slightly before we dive straight into what happened. Obviously, Scott McLaughlin taking his first win of the season. Uh, a very interesting race from a strategy point of view because the two-stop strategy is usually the one that plays out at Barber. But we had a very nicely timed caution for the guys who decided to commit to a three-stop strategy, which was, unusually, if you watch other forms of motorsport, you might be familiar with teams who kind of hedge their bets and split strategies with different drivers, especially in Formula One. It's kind of a uh, a typical kind of way to go about racing with your two cars in, in Formula One. But here in Barber, Penske decided to put all three of its cars on the three-stop strategy and commit to that caution coming out. If the caution hadn't come out, it would have been a very difficult race for them to, to kind of alleviate a whole pit stop on track. But uh, yeah, they, uh, they got the caution they needed. They fought hard. Roman Grosjean pushed Scott McLaughlin in the penultimate stint as hard as he possibly could and kept the lead until the final stop. Obviously, Roman and, and Scott did some battling on track with one of the best overtakes of the race coming from Roman to take the lead after the final pit stop. And then Scott McLaughlin seemingly inevitably took the lead back with his uh, extensive pace that he was able to display in that last uh, that last stint, especially partially because he had more fuel because he'd done the three-stop strategy. So he was able to, to burn his equipment a bit more and head to victory lane. So JR, I guess... Um, uh, I guess a good place to start would be with Grosjean because obviously Scott is a big story and we're going to talk about him um, 
But it, it, I guess the the kind of overruling storyline here, maybe for people, is that Romance had three poles in in IndyCar now and hasn't been able to to convert either of well any of those three poles into a win. It it definitely feels like he's had some misfortune. Remember the 2021 pole with with Dale Coyne at the Indy Road Course where. Um, he was held up by a, a driver trying to stay on the lead lap and, and Rina Svike was able to undercut him in the pits. And then we had the the pole earlier this season where Scott McLaughlin himself took Roman Grosjean out of the race while they were fighting for the victory. And um, arguably if that incident hadn't have happened, then Roman probably would have probably would have had that elusive first win. So when we say Roman hasn't been able to convert these poles, it's definitely a scenarios outside of his control at this stage um this one he did make a mistake at turn five and that's what handed mclaughlin the win but i guess the way i've looked at this and we'll we'll get your thoughts on this now is that he you know arguably shouldn't have even been there in the first place to be making that mistake and and handing the the lead to mclaughlin he was 20 seconds ahead of uh, the next person on the same strategy and it was very clear that scott on that three-stop strategy had a, a lot of pace and a lot of fuel to burn there so i guess the highlights for roman were uh, whenever he needed to pull out a, a quick lap, whether it be on a, an in-lap or or when Scott was closing in, he was able to access that pace. Even when, you know, many of the other drivers in the race were trying to save fuel, he seemed to be able to just have access to that uh, that pace to keep Scott behind him for for large parts of it. Also had the the brilliant overtake at Turn 14, which if you've not seen that yet, definitely head to, to social media or YouTube to watch the, the race highlights and, and check out that brilliant overtake from from Roman. I guess, how do you see this? Um, do you see this as kind of a race win lost because of that mistake at, at turn five? Or, or do you kind of subscribe to this kind of feeling that maybe it was inevitable that Scott was just going to, you know, have the pace over that last stint to, to take the win at some point and that Roman's mistake kind of just sped things up a bit there? Well, I guess I would, I mean, there's a few things to unpack about it, but one is, I don't know, I guess I don't think necessarily that all the cars on the three stop were going to end up where they did anyway at the end without the caution. But I think there were going to be three-stop cars that had an advantage at the end of this race one way or the other. Yeah. But the the fact that that caution came out, it also helped the two-stop cars not have to save as much fuel later in the race. And that as that caution was happening, where those three-stop cars were coming out, I mean, Joseph was more indicative of where the three stop cars were going to be because he had the complete outlap and and all that stuff so he would he cycled through when you know when everything cycled through after that stop i think he was sixth or seventh or something seventh seventh he was he was a really good marker wasn't he he was so and i say i bring him up to say so he was seventh mclaughlin would have been ahead of him anyway because he went a lap longer and and as we ended up recognizing through the second and third stints, Newgarden was being really hampered on pace by whatever the issue was. We guess, I guess we assume that it, we, we will talk about that later, kind of what was going on with him, but he was off pace relative to what McLaughlin certainly was going to be able to do anyway. And so it may have, it may have turned out that we would have wound up with a very similar kind of end result here, which was you have one car being Grosjean and on the two stop and one car being McLaughlin on the three stop that were had sort of separated themselves basically from everybody else that was on even their own strategies. We've seen that in the past. I mean, last year, I think Pato was on the three stop and ended up fourth or something. It was like the quickest car on the three. St- it was something like that. Like there was one, there was one car basically that was going to make the three stop kind of work. And it, I guess it, it looked to me like, the Penske cars, if if Joseph hadn't had a problem, I think you would have ended up with all three of the Penske cars battling for the podium in this race one way or the other. So while I do think that that caution helped some of the three stoppers a lot, just in terms of the in terms of the gap that the that Joseph and McLaughlin as the leading three stop cars at the end of the first tent, the amount of time they had already made up. To then be able, like, let's just say it went green for the rest of the race, to be able to go full rich while the rest of those guys, while the rest of the two stoppers are having to save at that point, then a lot of fuel, which didn't end up being the case because of the caution. Um, I, I guess I just want to put that out there that I think that I don't think I don't think the fact that McLaughlin ended up winning was beca- on the three stop was because of the caution. I think it was just because the three stop was ultimately going to be faster for the handful of cars that were able to really make do with that pace. 
then breaking down like what was the cause or what were what were the causal factors of of Roman not getting this win it's really hard to say whether or not he would have been able to keep McLaughlin at bay there in those closing stages because it's a little unclear I mean, McLaughlin, once McLaughlin got by, he ended up putting like three seconds on Grosjean to the end of the race, but he pulled those three seconds out over like 10 or 12 laps or something. Like it wasn't, it, it was, it wasn't like he pulled out three seconds in three laps. Um, and so is McLaughlin leaving a little bit in his back pocket once he's in the lead and once he starts to pull that gap? Maybe, but basically the way that this race ended up working was that you had to be really good. You had to be a lot better than the car in front of you through two and three, two turns, two, three, kind of the same corner to be able to get that runoff. And it's a short straightaway to outbreak somebody going on in turn five. So I, I'm personally, I think on the side of the fence that if, if Roman doesn't blow the braking zone in that, that one instance, there's at least a possible, like it was not a foregone conclusion that Scott McLaughlin was going to get by him. I don't think um, they didn't because we even saw once Will Power, who had all the same advantages that McLaughlin had, and and closed up a pretty enormous gap to to Roma over the course of the second half of that final stint. Closed up, closed in five or eight seconds or something. Once he got close. He, there was just nothing he was going to do, be able to do with it over those last. Like you saw when he got within a second and a half or two seconds, that and he got in the arrow wash of the car in front. He just didn't didn't have anywhere near that same pace to be able to throw at it. So I I guess I think that all things considered, given that they were on different strategies, there were more scenarios in terms of the way this race worked out that McLaughlin was going to win than not. Just because I, but basically because I think Roman was actually just at a disadvantage from from a strategic perspective from the beginning. Could he have kept Scott behind him if he hadn't have gone gone long basically through that one breaking zone? Maybe it, it's it's possible. So um, you know, overall, I think just to talk about to talk about Roman and his and his race, the fact that he had such enormous separation at the end, even with that caution, which kind of bunched everybody back up to the next car that was on the same strategy, that to me is is actually the thing that's most impressive about his race, that he was able to extract that much more than anybody else out of the, out of the two-stop to even have a fighting chance against those two Penske cars that were up front. Um, you know, I mean, you you could have imagined a, a different scenario here where if all if Joseph doesn't have an issue and Romain is, has the has the same average pace as the rest of the leaders on the two stop, then you've got a you know Penske filled podium by the end of this event. So I think I think for me the way that I was framing this up just in, for the context of it at the end of the event was man, like that was really impressive that Roman was even in it at the end, basically, despite, you know, whatever went on, how, however you viewed uh, the the yellow to be advantageous for anybody in particular. It's an interesting take, Jay. I kind of want to get a little bit more of your insight in the, the kind of strategic element of it, because I guess if we hadn't have had the caution, we would have had Scott coming out seventh, uh, eighth, I guess just behind Joseph on the used reds. I think McLaughlin would have come out ahead of Joseph because he was going a lap longer and had yeah. pace on Joseph. So he would have yeah. overcut Newgarden, I think. So even in that even in that scenario, let's say he came out sick then or, or or around that kind of window, he would have had to have done what Will Power did on the next stint, which was on used reds, close down a big gap to the leaders. And that would have involved passing cars in that scenario to to get to the lead. And obviously we saw what happened to Will. He he kind of ran out of steam at the end there, really. He used his tires up. He'd obviously had to push really hard to close that 11 seconds down from from where he was um, to, to get to to get to get Roman. So I guess without the caution, the, I guess my question is, do you think that in that scenario, Scott would have been able to alleviate that gap with the used reds that, that Will had to do basically in that last in, in order to be in a position to to attack there without that caution. 
I guess personally I do because Will was able to do it from much worse track position than McLaughlin would have had, right? So and and McL- and Grosjean would have been saving more fuel because the caution wouldn't have happened as well. And Grosjean would have. I mean, all of those guys. Those I, I, if you're on the three stop and you're on on even used reds, which did prove. I thought it was interesting that Pato, I guess, in the pre race uh, did or when I don't know when they were talking to him in the car. It's so weird that they're. That they do that now. Um, <laughs> that yeah. he was sort of saying that he didn't think the that the the threads were going to be as bad as what you know a lot of people I think were initially mm-hmm. predicting. Uh, that absolutely proved to be true. That the reds lasted fine. You know, they there were some guys. Colton Herta comes to mind. There were some drivers certainly that used them up and and didn't have them at the end of a stint when they needed them. But on average, it wasn't like everybody was just falling off a cliff having to pit for tires. When when that type of what what we're explaining here ends up happening is the drivers that are on the two stop they're just sitting ducks all over the place around the track because they're having to save so much fuel. So the typical it's hard to pass at barber kind of thing, which is definitely true on an apples when it's apples to apples and you're on kind of the same strategy strategies everybody else that sort of goes out the window because you just got you got a bunch of opportunities to get by guys or at least you you end up with a bunch of opportunities to stay much closer to somebody so that you can pounce and use overtake and and do all those things so i guess i think i actually think will powers race where he ended up is sort of the reason why I think, or or a part of the reason why I think Scott was going to win this race anyway, which was that if you looked at where the two of them were at the end of the first stint, figuring, okay, they've both got to basically, which in whichever order they go used red and, and primary to the end there, McLaughlin would have had, even, even without the yellow, McLaughlin would have had substantially, he would have had, you know, a minimum of five seconds, probably somewhere more like eight or 10 seconds worth of track position on willpower at the end of that first cycle. And so I just think, I think that gap would have gotten, you know, used up. And we, and we also know that Scott's, Scott's good at executing in those kinds of situations. Like when he's got guys to pass, he, he gets it done. So, um, you know, it, it, it may not have ended up working out that way, but I think that once, once we were closing in on the, kind of final third of that first stint i was i already had the before the caution came out i was definitely thinking three stop guys are just going to the front at this point like this is not looking good the the amount of time that they're making up and the and the the fact that they are able to that they are at that point they were able to work their way up through the pack they were legitimately running seventh eighth ninth whatever having made a pit stop already on all of those guys, basically. So um, I think this this was going to be one of those Barber events that swung in favor of the guys that were just going flat out. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. All right, so back to Grosjean. I mean, this has been a this has been a seriously impressive start to the season. You covered it in terms of his qualifying performance, but you know, if, if we just if we just look at the events, right? I mean, St. Pete, he certainly should have been on the podium. Probably should have been the should have won the race. Um, Could have, should have, would have, but you know that he was certainly he was in position to, and certainly had the pace to. I think even if McLaughlin, we had talked about this before, but even if McLaughlin had gotten by, he still seemed like he had the stronger car. Um, Texas, he ran very well, made a mistake that 
was ultimately a mistake of his own in that situation, but got to the closing stage as the race was one of the few cars that had that remained on the lead lap a little bit like thinking about him being the two stopper that was running up front. That's just a hard thing to do all by itself. Basically at Texas at that point was to stay on the lead or to be on the lead lap at the end of the race. So he kept himself in, in contention, certainly for a, a, a solid points haul there. Um, Long beach, he's in the thick of it for the entire weekend and, and on point comes here in position to win the race had certainly, I mean, if he had been on the three stop, he would have been ahead of all those guys. And, and, you know, so if you look at it that way, certainly had the pace to win. I mean, what is, what are, what is that performance over the first stanza, let's say of the season before going to Indianapolis, we've obviously got the road course, but, but heading into the month of May, what does that tell you about where he sits kind of from a, maybe more genuine championship contenders perspective. Do you think he's in that conversation already? Or do you think that he's still got some work to do? It's definitely an interesting question. And a lot of it kind of centers around Andretti as well, knowing, you know, the, the, the journey that they've been on over the past few years and the the package that they offer their drivers and whether that package is, is good enough to live with a, a Penske or a, a Ganassi or a, even what looks like Aaron McLaren now over the course of a, a season as well. So I think a lot of that question is down to a, a team perspective as well, but just purely on Roman's performance. I mean, you know, you picked out all of his races there and, um, you know, even Texas was a, a big one and he got a lot of stick for that, especially from, I think European fans looking at him driving on an oval and kind of crashing out. And, um, uh, I guess that gave them a little bit of fuel to throw on their fire of, uh, doubting whether Roman can be a champion or, a or even a consistent race winner in, in IndyCar. But I think, you know, just from my perspective of watching that Texas crash, it, it looked like it could have, you know, maybe it would be too simplistic to say that it could happen to anyone. But I think um, I think you'll know better than anybody that it's it's difficult to explain to someone what it's like having the air took off, off the front of your car in, in a, you know, at the end of a stint when you're pushing so hard at the end of a race to try and get on the podium and, and something like that happens to you, I think you know, it, it's clear that the the other drivers around him didn't crash and there's obviously an element of of driver error to it. But I think it's a lot more complicated than just saying that he kind of just crashed out from a pure error. I think that that crash was a lot more complicated than maybe it, it looks on the, on the face of things. And then, you know, there's not really any complaints to throw at any of his other, you know, three races really. And especially when it comes to, to qualifying. And I think just coming off the back of, Last season, he just appears a lot more consistent. He, he seems happier um, just from a, a personal perspective when you hear him speak, when you see him, you know, walking around the the paddock. He's always always happy and signing autographs, autographs for the fans and stuff like that. But I think with the media, when we tend to to get a little bit, bit more of Roman kind of immediately after races or um, immediately before them, I think you can usually tell what kind of mood he's in. It's very, it's very obvious. Um Whereas that might not be the case with when you see him speaking to fans and stuff like that. He's always got the smile on his face and and has that kind of outward public persona that maybe um, Formula One kind of breeds you into. But immediately after sessions or or before races, um, when you ask him to really analyse and, and think about things, you know, quite deeply and, and speak about it to the media, he's, it's very clear immediately what kind of what kind of mood he's in. And, and this season, even when things haven't been going his way for some of the reasons that we've spoken about there he still had that smile on his face and still been quite, quite bouncy about his chances of, of, you know, where he is now with, with Andretti. And I think all signs point to, to that relationship continuing beyond this year, even though this is a contract year, I did ask Roman about that and what it meant for him to perform this way in a, in a championship year and what he felt that meant for his future. And he said those conversations would, you know, come around May, which is quite typical in, in IndyCar as we know, but, I think definitely all signs there point to, to that relationship continuing and, and the way he's performing at the minute, it's hard to imagine what Andretti would do without him because it's definitely clear that, that Kyle Kirkwood is a, a race winner now. We definitely can't uh, have that debate anymore because he's uh, he's factually an IndyCar race winner, but he's he's got to do that on a consistent basis and, and turn himself into a, a championship contender. And I don't think either of us on this podcast are in any doubt that he can do that, but it's um, that's something that you have to just do for people to to know that you can do it. So we'll, we'll, we'll wait for that with, with bated breath. And it's kind of the same for Colton Herter really in, in, in some perspectives. Um, you know, some people are doubt whether, whether he can be a champion in IndyCar and whether he can produce that consistency that he hasn't quite managed to, 
to put together yet. Whereas Roman, you know, over the course of the first four races has, has regularly delivered that performance that, that Andretti's looking for. So really interesting kind of start to the year, especially based off, you know, what we saw last year. And I think there's a lot more, there's a lot more to it than just saying that they fixed the the kind of understeer problem that Roman was, was suffering with last year. And, uh, that's been an issue throughout his career. He just doesn't like driving cars with understeer and that's just how it is. You know, you get drivers in the paddock who are very adaptable and drive cars in, in different ways and are very happy to have that kind of um, mixed car performance and you get the drivers who want the car a certain way and that's how they, you know, perform to the best of their ability and Roman's definitely one of those drivers. So, you know, as soon as that was sorted, you know, towards the end of last year and, and beginning of this year, it's really, it's really boosted his performance in the car and, you know, Michael Andretti's spoken about his mindset and, and asking Roman to go away and, and work on how he approaches race weekends and, and how he approaches his racing. And he definitely seems to be happy. Roman said in the in the press conference after the race yesterday that Michael had told him that was one of the best performances he'd seen in, in his IndyCar time, you know, being in the paddock. So um, we know how long Michael's been around. We know how long he's been watching IndyCar for. And for him to say something like that, um, I think that tells you everything you need to know about how he rated Roman's performance in the in the Barber race. So Roman's definitely going to be a phenomenal story. And we we did a feature with him for the race. You can go and read that um, from, from a few weeks back where he said, if you'd have told him that he'd have been in contention to go and win an Indy 500 in 2023, he'd have told you to F off. Um, and he did use the F word happily. Um, but he reckons now that the... Out of boy. Yeah. <laughs> the, the chances of him... Um, you know, winning a 500 are much more realistic now. And he's definitely going into the month of May feeling a lot more confident on ovals and, and feeling just a lot happier in his skin when it comes to his, his IndyCar performance. So he's definitely going to be a big story in May and he's going to be a big story through, through the rest of the season for sure. So JR, I guess uh, we've talked about this a little bit, but uh, I guess in my sort of, uh, I guess comments at the start of the pod there and, and and my kind of general feeling is that McLaughlin was kind of the inevitable winner because of how this kind of all um, played out. But uh, I guess I kind of wanted to dig into that a tiny bit more deeply and just kind of ask where we kind of, where we feel Scott is at the minute. It's been a kind of weird start to the season for him because he's not had any of those kind of highlight results maybe that you would expect of him until now, obviously. Um but it's also been a, a very good season for, for in many perspectives. I know St. Pete was um, was a mistake and, and one that he admitted to. These things kind of happen. Um, you know, you've got to give a driver one one mistake a season, surely. But you know, I think just as a kind of a sidetrack, um, the fact that he finished finished thirteenth in that race is just shows you how absolutely crazy that St. Pete race was yeah. because he's still like he's still classified as 13th in the standings based on based on how uh, how crazy that race was but uh, yeah obviously followed that up with two top 10s at, at Texas and Long Beach and then delivered the win here at uh, Barber so probably in in like the kind of um, Alex Polo camp here or um, I guess kind of like a Dixon camp um, of, of the season's just been kind of quite low-key but has been you know, pretty productive in, in many ways to, to start the year. But I guess every time we seem to put him in a, in a scenario where he's either leading a race at, at the end and he comes under intense pressure or whether he's the one who has to go and track down someone to, to win the race, it just seems like he's got this extra gear. I don't know if we're just making this um, a bit too like uh, a storyline for 100 Days to Indy or if we're making it even too simplistic, too simplistic in a way. But it does just seem that when you put him in these scenarios where he's leading a race or whether he whether he can smell a race win, he just takes it up another gear and it's just, you know, I think a lot of a lot of his win comes down to the scenario he was in, and obviously Will started further back and Joseph's problems we'll talk about shortly. But regardless of those two things, whenever you give Scott a chance like this, he just seems to be able to turn it up a notch and deliver. And I think that just makes him it makes him a scary prospect, I think, if you're any of the other drivers in the field and you know that Scott's around. Because I think this is a, like a, a, a legitimate storyline to kind of talk about, but he's come from, from, from supercars and I think everyone who's ever watched supercars like knows how cool it is and what a, like a hard-fought championship that is and what it takes to win one of those championships. But it's just not IndyCar. It's totally... 
you know, totally different to, to IndyCar in, in many respects. And I don't think anyone expected Scott to come over and be the Scott McLaughlin from supercars in IndyCar as quickly as it's happened. And I just thought Barber just reinforced that, that anytime he gets a sniff of this kind of thing, there's drivers in the field that I think you put in that scenario and they settle for, for a third or a fourth, or they're just not able to kind of take it to that next level where they can go and hunt that down. And Scott is one of those drivers and that makes him, you know, we're getting to a point where it really puts him in the top kind of echelon of drivers in the series now. Yeah. I, I mean, I definitely in a general, from the general sentiment of the whole thing, I do for sure think that he's in the top echelon of drivers and is now at this point somebody who on a weekly basis in the IndyCar series, basically regardless of what type of track it is, he has, I guess he hasn't really had, uh, to me, he's still, he's still got kind of, there's still half a notch between he and Joseph on short ovals, right? Like Joseph definitely in the same equipment has been able to extract you know, a lot more, not, not just in terms of results, but when you're watching those races, everything that you just described about Scott is like how you describe Joseph Newgarden on a short oval. And, mm-hmm. and for that matter, a lot of other tracks, but <laughs> Scott hasn't, Scott hasn't quite had that same, you know, so to say he's, he's got that in him at every track on the schedule is maybe not, maybe not true, not as true about him as it might be for some other guys, um, on, on short ovals in particular, but we've seen this happen with Scott in a number of scenarios now that he's just got, he's got a, just a, a determination about kind of his spirit and his, just his whole kind of vibe in those situations that, that creates for a lot of resilience against just anything, anything not going his way. You know, like it, it's kind of like you start to just get the feeling that he's, he's, he's kind of willing everything to going his direction in the way that those races play out. And, uh, and there's, there's kind of something to that. Like there, that is something at times that you can sense about other guys on track around you. Even it's not something that you just feel in yourself when you're in those moments. Um, you know, for Scott, I think that the mindset is actually probably very, you know, it's probably very silent and simple in terms of what's going on for him. He's just, clicking away but it's it's a it's an extraordinarily locked in place that he goes to in those situations uh, you know one of the post race quotes that i liked from scott was i can't remember exactly what he said but it was something to the effect of that basically like being on the three stop in this race was kind of the driver's choice strategy you know that if you give the driver the choice they're all they're going to take the don't make me save fuel let me just go as hard as i can choice every time <laughs> and so they they gave him that option and and he definitely uh made the most of it but that gives you even a little bit of insight into probably what's going on inside the helmet you know behind the visor is like as soon as they as soon as they know they're on the three three stop he's just thinking like fuck yeah all right like let's go and so, um, whereas, you know, we talked about, you talked about Grosjean earlier and I want to just, I want to touch on, touch on that for a second, you know, Michael Andretti giving him that type of compliment is not something that Michael Andretti just hands out to, to everybody in any situation. So that does definitely tell you something about the drive that, that Roma had. And, and I think that it's interesting to think about in a slightly different context, what he was able to achieve by just going as long as he did by getting that much out of the car over that that duration of time, that is really the type of thing that we've only that that we you only have those kinds of situations from like Scott Dixon and Alex Pillow in the IndyCar series right now. Like that's just the ability to to be so in tune with what the car, the maximum of what the car can give you, given your situation, knowing that you have to make the tire last for longer than the guys around you, knowing that you have to make the fuel last for longer than the guys around you. I mean, thinking about looking back a weekend at Long Beach, thinking that he went, Kyle, Kyle Kirkwood was saving fuel to get to the end of that stint. And Roma had, he had a lap on Roma. And so the fact, I mean, that, that to me, we, we talked about, I guess, just the fact that, you know, that he didn't have any put that he wasn't able to use the push to pass sooner. Just the fact that he was even in the same zip code having to make an extra laps worth of fuel on the eventual race winner who was also saving fuel is 
an enormous accomplishment. Um, so I think that that's something to me that while it's well, because he hasn't won either of these races, it ends up just flying very much under the radar because it wasn't like, you know, the overcoming that obstacle didn't result in like maximum glory. Um, it's still it, it's telling us something about what Ramon can do in a in a car that's handling how he wants it to that he's that he's super confident and comfortable. In. I mean, when you talk about him walking around the paddock with a smile on his face, drivers walk around in the paddock with a smile on their face all the if if they are walking around the paddock with a smile on their face all the time, it's just because they know their stuff's really good. Like they know that kind of no matter like they're when when you know your car is good when you've gotten out of your car in the last session you're just like I don't know whatever just don't don't touch it basically like you know we could we could kind of be we could even be like a little off from where we're at right now and it's probably fine there's just a you're so much more relaxed you just know that it's it's whatever is going to happen is going to be okay and and that you're going to be allowed to just go do your thing like it's like talking to kyle about how winning at long beach was like the easiest race of his indycar career that that a lot of it is just because you don't have to you don't have to go back out on track feeling like you have to answer a bunch of questions for yourself anymore. So all of that factors into both of these guys, the performances that we've seen from Rama and from Scott kind of in different, they different, they definitely have different attitudes. They have different attitudes outside the car. I think they have different attitudes inside the car. Uh, McLaughlin definitely has this kind of like, he's, he's like got some killer instinct and, and he's just, he's just like a hunter out there, you know, to kind of to your point. So, um, it's not to say that Roman doesn't have that. He's, he's shown that he has a lot of the same traits, but it doesn't come across quite as his like complete vibe in those situations, the same way it does for Scott. Um, but it, it's all just the level of, of all of these guys and particularly talking about those two guys who, you know, were rookies in the same year, two seasons ago, who came from very, the, themselves very different backgrounds between each other but obviously both coming from outside of indycar um i i think the fact that they've both been able to rise to this level doing something different and new just speaks to you know their respective talent levels just if you threw them in anything basically and uh it's really cool to see it's just it's just such a cool thing to to watch these guys you know do their thing and continue to evolve and kind of elevate i'm these are two of the driver those two guys are probably the two most interesting drivers to me looking ahead to the indy 500 to see you know what they can do with their teams as you've probably heard by now we've teamed up with betmgm this season we'll be using betmgm lines to make all of our picks and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week if you haven't signed up for betmgm yet use bonus code the athletic and you'll get a one-year subscription to the athletic plus up to a fifteen hundred dollar first bet offer on your first wager with betmgm here's how it works Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. We've talked about him a little bit here and there, but let's let's dig into Joseph Newgarden's race. Um, you know, it... I know only what, what we kind of learned from watching on TV and, and the post-race, which was that he had some sort of... When, I guess he had suspension damage. We we saw that he got clipped. There was a crossweight issue. I can say I can say certainly from a driver's perspective, especially at a place like Barber, if you've got anything that's out of whack from that perspective, it will completely ruin to you the way the car feels. And it doesn't have to be out of whack by that much to to throw it off. So to me, the the fact that he was sort of in the mix for as long as he was 
in hindsight is is surprising but i guess this you know it's it's unfortunate for him and and for for fans of joseph watching him i think we would both consider ourselves kind of kind of fans like we 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 like joseph we've had him on the pod we like to see him do well um I, I, with any of these guys that run up front i like i just like to see them be able to be at their best um this is just kind of another another race in a string of inconsistent races dating back to last year for Joseph and the two crew. I mean, I'm I'm curious what your what your just perspective on that is, you know, from the outside. Yeah, definitely. Well, I've written a piece on this for for the race, so you can head over to the highfromrace.com and check out a kind of wider feature on uh, Joseph's um I guess uh, continued roller coaster form, I guess you would call it and uh, I guess a little bit of what's been going on there, but yeah, I guess if you just look back to kind of how he started this year uh, and then reflect on, on 2022, I mean, um, St. Pete last year, he was 16th. Um, this year he was 17th, obviously one Texas this year, one Texas last year. Um, the, the big difference between the two seasons so far is that he won Long Beach last year and obviously had the, I guess what we think is a, a fuel issue um, this year. And then Barber last year was 14th and this year is 15th. So there's like one place between most of his finishes um, uh, over the last two seasons, starting the season. Apart from that, obviously the, the Long Beach one being the big one that kind of boosted his points last year compared to where he is, where he is now. And I, I guess he's sixth now and he's 25 points off the, the championship lead. So it's definitely not time to, to hit the panic button. And uh, I guess a lot of the reasons not to be worried or a lot of the reasons we've, spoke about on the pod already in the previous races where he's had issues is that he's a lot more comfortable with where, where his team's at. There's less, you know, personnel moving around. Um, maybe it's fair to say, in fact, that last year he had a lot of personnel moving around very close to the start of the season, whereas this year they have had personnel move around, but they've had people move around in the off season and they've had months of preparation and bedding those people into the to the team to to get them ready and and the whole thing just seems a lot more stable joseph seems a lot more happy in terms of how the the the, the kind of fundamental aspect of getting the car onto the track and how it is you know how they are executing over the course of a weekend he seems a lot happier in how all of that is working so all of the results are quite similar to, to last year and you know people probably w- would maybe think that 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 lack of consistency last year even in the first four races was a little bit worrying for, for him, uh, which obviously turned out to be when it came to the end of the season after winning five races to, to powers one and power won the title. I think that tells you everything we, you know, we need to know about that consistency. We've spoken about it on the pod, you know, uh, a lot before, but there was still so much to, to like about New Garden's race, even though it didn't go right. And, you know, it was easy to see why he was frustrated at the end of the race. It's so rare, isn't it, JR, to hear, Joseph use words like demoralizing when it comes to, you know, a post-race press conference. Like he's usually so upbeat. It's always like, thanks to the sponsors, thanks to the team. The team's done such a good job, et cetera, et cetera. And he did do all that at Barber, but it was also like, yeah, you know, I hate to use the word luck, but the timing is off, you know, pretty continuously at the moment. And it's pretty demoralizing for the team. And he called his car evil, which is, you know, for for the reasons you explained, it's easy to understand why you would call that car evil because it was obviously difficult to to control after that contact with with Felix Rosenquist on the first lap that you you mentioned. But as I said, there was there was some good things to to see from that race. Mainly that whenever fresh tires went on that car, it was absolutely you know on pace. He passed McLaughlin at one point after putting fresh tires on in a pit stop, um, and you know it looked absolutely fine in terms of um, how all that was working. One kind of I guess under the radar thing that I want to mention was that Newgarden actually set the best outlap of the race, despite the damage on his car. And it kind of reflects him, you know, it kind of supports that idea that the car was good on, you know, fresh tires and, and wasn't, you know, so bad. And then at the end of the stint, he, you know, his, his, his best, uh, his best in lap of the race was the 14th fastest. So I guess that kind of tells you all you need to know, but even the outlap was pretty amazing. Like, um, I worked this out for the feature, so you can go and have a look at this um, in writing if you prefer. But um, the next person after Newgarden in terms of the fastest outlap was Rossi, who was four tenths back. Uh, Powell was just under five tenths back. And then the next driver was McLaughlin, who won the race, who was over a second slower on his best outlap. So the fourth best outlap of the race was a second slower than Newgarden's best outlap, which kind of shows you how, you know, how he nailed that. And obviously, as we know, if outlaps we've spoken about a lot before JR we both like them a lot um because they you know with no tire warmers and with a full tank of fuel it's one of the 
the dark arts of the championship, but you can also get traffic on outlaps and it's not always a, you know, a perfect measurement of how good an outlap is. You know, someone can nail an outlap and get some traffic and it costs them a few tenths and drops them down the, the rankings in that situation. But I think given the damage and everything, it still shows, you know, how good, how good Newgarden had been there. So I guess it's a, it's a similar, we find ourselves in a similar conversation as we did last year at this point, although without that Long Beach win for, for Newgarden, but it does feel like the team's a lot more stable and it, it we're so early in the season that there's plenty of time for for that two crew to really, you know, go on a haul, win some races and have some some good consistent form that can, you know, fire them back into championship contention. And and the one good thing for Joseph that we can really get excited about if you're a fan of his is that there's no double points at the Indy 500 this year. So if... Um, Watch him go win Indy. He's like, the one time! Yeah, that's 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 the one I was just about to say. The, the potential <laughs> the potential downside of that is that he could finally win Indy and then not get the boost of the double points, which has probably cost him quite heavily in, in previous years, as we've discussed on the pod before. Neither JR or I are a big fan of double points at the 500, but with those out of the way... Um, if, if Penske don't bring the package that they, they want to to the 500, which they've not done for the past couple of years, then at least there's uh, a little bit of pressure off there for, for Joseph that that's not going to you know totally ruin his season. So yeah, I think basically, JR, I think there's a bit of doom and gloom around, but the fact that he's still sixth in the, sixth in the points and I think 25 points off and a lot more settled generally, um, I, 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 I'm not ready to hit the panic button on him just yet. No, and 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 just to jump in real quick, I, I'm not either. I, and I think that while, like you mentioned, that the the sort of statistics don't seem that different from last year, I do think that the the general attitude is different. And the reason that the statistics don't look that different is for for a completely different set of reasons than it was last year. So I think that you know this this is a group and a driver that has has the ability to be potentially the most consistent driver and i mean when he won when he was in winning championships and was up front in championships over i mean he's been there for the last you know six or seven years in a row it's because they've been able because they've been the ones who have made uh you know made lemonade out of lemons basically you know when they've had weekends that aren't going well they've been able to extract you know, top tens out of those weekends when everything seems like it's going sideways or they're having issues or on the wrong strategy or, or whatever. And so I think last year for me was still an outlier in terms of how up and down the season was. And, and there was some various, there, there were some, some different variables basically in play for, I think why that was the case or that, or why that may have been the case to cut, to talk about a couple of the, you know, and, and I think just to, to bring the, you know, bring the heat down on, on that argument as well. Talking about Long Beach, I did, I I did go back and forth with Joseph afterwards. And, and he said that it was actually an issue at the first stop that they, so we, we had, we had talked about or sort of, uh, hypothesized, I guess, some conjecture. Yeah. Over whether they had short filled apps accidentally or, or, or otherwise on the final stop. And that that was why he was immediately having to save so much fuel. It was actually that they had short, they had an issue at the first stop, didn't get as much fuel in the car as they had intended to, didn't know it until basically the end of that stint when the fuel alarm came on. We talked about, we talked just a second ago about Kirkwood was saving fuel. Roman, a lap being a lap different than that was saving a lot of fuel. So then Joseph having to save for an additional lap on top of that, that was, he was basically just instantly out in no man's land. So mm-hmm. that was, uh, you know, something out of Joseph's control. Certainly, apparently he was saving, you know, we, we've also had a few of these situations here where there's been some, some talk about, and even on the broadcast yesterday, that was interesting that they talked about the, the fuel economy that Chevy's were getting, that there was some concern about that at a time. And that's why they were on the three stop. I mean, there were other Chevys that went just as long as any of the two stoppers and weren't Pato Award, you know, being among them, among the top, the top group of cars and and whatever. Um, I think there was a little bit of that talk maybe about Joseph's situation also at Long Beach. That all just, that none of that basically was true, that there was just an issue that they sort of didn't know about and uh, until it was too late to do anything about it. So I think between that and to your point, talking about this race, you know, it may have been that that's a car that 
literally nobody else could even have finished where he finished in it. <laughs> um, he needed he needed every ounce of that, you know, Atlas um, upper body strength to be able to just man manhandle the thing around the track for 90 laps or whatever it was uh, to be able to get away with it. I did. I felt bad for him on that one exchange that he just got totally freight trained. I mean, he was yeah. holding everybody up at the end uh-huh. of the second stint there, but um, it was definitely, I mean, that's, that's why he's saying it's demoralizing is because, because of stuff like that. You just, you know, you're sitting there in the car just totally helpless. So, um, you know, I think this is a group that'll that'll turn the corner and and be back on uh, be back on the button here soon. Anyway. Yeah, fifteenth is where he finished. I don't think we actually mentioned that in the exchange there, so uh, probably uh, worth sticking that in there and mentioning that. So, yeah, Jr. Uh, I can't really disagree with any of your comments there, and I think you've rounded Joseph off quite nicely there for us. Uh, I guess we should mention a couple of other, I guess, performances through the race. Um, one thing I will pick you up on quickly as well is that uh, you mentioned no award there and the kind of Chevy fuel mileage situation and Pato had to go a lap extra than Alex Blow um, in that in that last stint. So, I mean, it's very possible that Pato's you know very very good at saving fuel and he's a, an, an anomaly in that situation. But also, I think it's a it's a there's a good chance there that that kind of reflects the fact that Chevrolet are not miles behind Honda or anything in that situation. The the fact that Pato had to go an extra lap. Um, around Barber it's not an, it's, you know we talk about this like an extra lap like it's like a, like a small thing like just one lap's just an easy thing like it's obviously yeah it's an entire extra I mean how many laps do you do it's like a you know you're doing 30 laps in a stint an extra lap is not an insignificant percentage exactly. of that amount of time spent yeah. during a stint I'm preaching to the converted because I imagine there's there's a few scenarios where someone's asked you to save like two laps and you've been you've basically told them to F off on the radio um, but but for the listener it's uh Wherever we go, whatever track we're on, a lap is never an insignificant amount of fuel. So um, Pato was one of those drivers who, um, yeah, he he had an extra lap to save than, than Alex Blow and, and managed to hold him off at the end of the race there, even though there was only a few tenths between them. So, um, yeah, that was a, a an interesting one. And, and even a, a little exchange between the two of them at the end of the, the race there, while I think Alex Pillow was being interviewed by the NBC TV crews and Pato came over and shook his hand. And I think they actually spoke in Spanish and the, the camera, the microphone just kind of picked up a little bit of it, but it was the, the, the gist of it was basically, Oh, you had to save a lot of fuel. Right. And the other one went, yeah, we had to save a lot of fuel. <laughs> so I think they were, <laughs> I think they were, uh, that's my limit. So how was your race? Saving fuel? Yeah. My, yeah, me too. L- luckily those guys are better at saving fuel than I am at understanding Spanish, but I basically got the, I think I got the gist <laughs> of what they were saying there. Um, Someone's gonna, someone's gonna uh, reply to us now, Jr. And tell us that they were speaking in English. And <laughs> <laughs> um, but but anyway, I guess we should round up a couple of other, um, uh, I guess, results through the field that we've not mentioned yet. Christian Lungard's a big one to to mention, I think, at this point because we've spoken about Ray Hall, Letterman, Lanigan on the podcast at various points this season, and this weekend was another one that wasn't um, perfect for them by any means. Definitely a, a difficult one for Jack Harvey and Graham Rahal didn't have it much better, but did his usual Graham Rahal thing of moving forward in the race. But Christian qualified up there. Uh, he was right in the thick of it throughout the race. Was the only person really who committed to the the two stop, but starting on the harder tyre, which we didn't get to see because a couple of the guys who started on the harder tyre were, well, Scott McLaughlin was one of them and he obviously uh, dipped out of that first stint to, to switch to the three stop. So um, Christian was one of the, well, the only person I think we got to see who was at least who was running up front anyway, who started on the hard tire and did the two stop, um, but pulled off some excellent overtakes, made a, made great use of um, turn 13 around the outside of Scott Dixon. If you've not seen that one, that was another contender for, for overtake of the race. Um, uh, a little bit more kind of, I think he caught Scott napping a little bit more than, what Roman did with Scott McLaughlin there um, in in the similar kind of move. I think Christian was already basically ahead by the time they got to turn 14 and Scott had to kind of like swerve to to stay out of the way. Whereas I think Scott had seen Roman come in in, in that sense um, in, in turn 14. So maybe Christian's was a little bit more opportunistic um, and, and caught Scott, uh, Scott Dixon a little bit more off guard there. But it was a... Uh, a, a pass, I think. I just wanted to mention, I think, JR, I, maybe you'll... Um, Maybe you'll be able to add some more insight to this, or maybe you'll just agree. But that that pass that that Lungard did, obviously it was a mint pass anyway. But 
Scott was one, I think was the first person who got properly freight trained by Newgarden being quite slow in that stint that you mentioned a little bit earlier on. So if Lungard had been behind, he also potentially would have been, you know, a lot further back than, than where he actually ended up. And, and because he'd made that pass on Dixon, he was actually able to, you know, not be a million miles off Alex Pillow. And I don't think he was ever going to get into that kind of podium fight or, or be in that kind of scenario. But the reason why he was able to kind of be where he was at the end of the race was because he made that pass on Dixon. Although um, it wasn't just a highlight reel for social media, that was an actual really important pass in, in the race. Yeah, I think just to touch on that for a second. I think it's it just goes to show how important every ounce of track position you know, a couple of feet can make a big difference. And we all know that. And, and every, on all the drivers, you know, they all do know that as they're going through these races, but that's a great example of it. That just, that ends up making the difference between, because new garden ends up slotting out in between those guys or whatever on the next stint or however that ends up pl- playing out that, um, you know, his race and Dixon's race from that point completely converge and become totally different in terms of where they're at on track, not, not ultimately massively different in terms of the the finishing order, but just in terms of what your opportunities are from that point on and kind of the, the general, uh, you know, layout of, or, or sort of the, the template that you have to follow just to get to the end of the race become, become totally different. I think it's interesting that that's that up until the last few years just has not been a place where you'd see a pass happen at all. I mean, I can think of the last time that I was at Barber, I actually missed, I missed the race in 2017 because my hand was broken, but in those cars, the higher downforce cars, the aero kit cars, like you're hardly slowing down at all for turn 14. And so it's just not a place where you'd even think about that. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's interesting, just a little bit of a difference in the sort of the way that the cars generate the lap time being more, more on the straight, less through the corner, you know, it opens up some of those areas like that to being. Because that wasn't even, I mean, I, that wasn't even that it was a massive difference in terms, I guess, I guess the Lungard and, and Dixon pass was they were on different tires and kind of on different strategy. Yeah. Um, yeah. Lungard was on the soft tire and Dixon was on a harder tire at that point. So I suppose that's, that is the case, but, but even so, I mean, just the fact that that's become a place where you can make a pass and make it stick is pretty incredible in my mind. I think in, in fairness, I think they both stopped. So even though there's a obviously a disparity between the soft and the hard tire they they had they were fresh so it wasn't like um you know there was any element of like having to save the tire there at any point or or anything like that um so so it was you know wasn't quite apples for apples but wasn't maybe as far off as it could have been if it was later in the stint or something like that you know they were they were both um pretty sharp on fresh tires there the only other person i wanted to mention was our uh our pre-season friend marcus armstrong who came on the pod um obviously records his pod uh, where he's drinking wine with his Formula 2 friends and and now has another pod where he speaks with Callum Eilat about what's going on in, in IndyCar for him. Uh, but when he's not recording those two podcasts, he listens to ours. So <laughs> hello, if you're listening, Marcus. <laughs> we'll add him to the list of uh, drivers who listens to our pod, which is actually longer than I expected, which is pretty cool. But anyway, less of tooting our own horn. He had a, a brilliant drive through the field from I think 26th to uh, to 11th. Uh, and ended up just behind uh, our still current points leader, but also a points leader heading into the race, Marcus Armstrong, who finished 10th and managed to hold on to his points lead with that result. It was a bit of a difficult weekend for him in terms of how qualifying played out. He ended up being um, the first car kind of missing out on the, the first group of qualifying. So that set him back a little bit at start 13th and uh, try and work his way forward from there and committed to that two stop, which we've already, already kind of laid out was not the ideal strategy I guess Alexander Rossi and Felix Rosenquist should also mention I guess Felix has had a really difficult season and and made quite a few errors but he did come back very very well from that uh, I guess that first corner collision with Newgarden um, I think it was pretty obvious at that point that he switched to the to the three stop after that you know after that incident it seems like a logical thing to do when you get dropped to the back of the field like that and take a little bit of a gamble but Alexander Rossi was one of the drivers along with the Penske guys who committed to that three-stop strategy, you know, fairly early, seemed to be quite happy with that. And uh, yeah, they, they didn't quite get as far forward as the as the Penske guys, but still got top tens out of it. So that was interesting to see. Anyone else you want to mention, JR, before we uh, call this a day here? No, I think, um, you know, I think as far as, you know, clicking off the highlights, those are really the guys that, that come to mind. And, and obviously we talked a little bit about Will earlier, just to kind of round out the podium, but um, 
you know, just a, a a strong drive from him that looked a lot like the type of performance that he was racking up weekend to weekend last year. So, you know, I think I think a, a number of drivers, you know, all, all of whom I think we've mentioned here, rolling into the month of May with a little bit of momentum and and some good weekends, and um, you know, and and for everybody else, they're looking to show up at the speedway to change their fortunes for the second half of the year. So, um, I, I think a lot to look forward to over the next few weeks. Well, make sure you head over to the-race.com for all your latest news and features from the world of IndyCar, including many things that happened over the Barber weekend. You can go and read more in-depth stuff over there. You should also give us, hopefully, a five-star rating, but go and give us a rating anyway of some description and leave us any sort of comments. You can email us, podcasts at the-race.com with voice notes if you want to appear on the podcast, or you can just send us general questions or suggestions. If there's anyone you want us to interview or any questions that you want answered, you can message us and let us know. We'll happily pick them up on the pod. We usually do some listeners' questions episodes dedicated to those kind of things, and we'll definitely look to do some of those around the 500 as well. I'm sure you guys will have some questions for JR when it comes to how to approach an Indy 500 month of May, and we'll definitely get into that a little bit more. Before that, we've got the Indy road course race, which has kind of become the gateway to the 500, I guess, because we have the the Indy road course race on the Saturday and then we have a couple of days off and then we're straight into practice for the 500 on the Tuesday. So things are going to come at us thick and fast, but make sure you stick with us. We'll have plenty of episodes coming up over the month of May. We'll also have a special guest next week previewing the Indy road course race. That's all for this week's episode of the Race IndyCar Podcast. The Athletic.